0: And before you throw up your hands in the air and wonder if any food is good or matters, <laughs> please hang in there with us because it um, isn't that simple. Welcome to the Nutrition Nerds Podcast. My name is Jennifer Ball, And I'm Kelly Yates. And we are the, the Nutrition, Nutrition Nerds. Nerds.
1: We both hold bachelor's degrees in dietetics and are on our way to becoming registered dietitians. Each weekend, we'll share the latest nutrition news from popular media and debunk fad diets and food myths. This is not
0: supposed to be dietary advice. If you are looking for dietary recommendations, consult a registered dietitian. Enjoy!
1: Hey there, nerds, and welcome to episode 80 of the Nutrition Nerds podcast. This week, we have another compilation episode for you, and this time we're talking all about our favorite topic, the gut microbiome. First, we'll talk about how to support your gut microbiome, then we'll discuss a possible link between the microbiome and weight gain, then we'll talk about potential downsides of probiotics and how artificial sweeteners may harm your gut bacteria, and finally we'll talk about the impact of a high fat diet on your gut microbiome. We also wanted to thank our listeners for continuing to support us and remind you that if you've been enjoying the show to please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this episode. And also if you haven't already, please subscribe. That way you make sure you get each new episode as soon as they're live. I also wanted to let our RD2Bs know, whether you're an intern or a student or thinking about becoming a student, that I've been documenting my journey through the internship on my website rd2besource.com, and there's going to be a link to that in the show notes. I've got uh, weekly recaps of my internship as well as articles about how to apply to an internship, how to write a personal statement, and things you'll need for each type of rotation. All right, let's get into the show. Our first article today is called Magical Microbes, How to Feed Your Gut. This article is written by Amy Fleming, and it's found on theguardian.com. So microbes refer to the beneficial bacteria that make up your gut microbiome or the bacteria that lines your gut. A healthy microbiome has been linked to lower obesity, fewer autoimmune diseases, fewer digestive problems, longer lifespan, and better brain function. One way to cultivate a healthy microbiome is by consuming prebiotics and probiotics. Many products brag about probiotic or prebiotic content or both. To clear things up, Probiotics are the nice bacteria found in your gut, and prebiotics feed the nice bacteria and usually contain fiber. Only products that are unheated, typically found refrigerated, will contain live probiotics. Good sources of probiotics include kimchi, sauerkraut, kombucha, kefir, yogurt, and miso. Now, variety is key to get a healthy, diverse gut flora both with probiotics and prebiotics. So sticking to drinking kombucha every single day to get in your probiotics might not be the best plan. Now good sources of prebiotics include artichokes, leeks, celery, onions, and garlic. Another way to support your gut is by creating what's called resistant starch from foods like potatoes, pasta, and rice. Now this is pretty cool. All you have to do is cook, cool, and reheat any of these foods, or you can eat them cold, and this process crystallizes much of the starch in these carbohydrate-heavy foods. This creates the resistant starch and acts more like a fiber and provides food for your gut bacteria. Now, some things that actually hurt your microbiome include junk food, of course. The emulsifiers that are often found in processed foods can disrupt your microbiome. And refined sugar is bad for them too, although we don't quite understand why yet. Now, if you're looking to incorporate more fiber or probiotics into your diet, start slowly. Otherwise, you can end up with bloating and discomfort, and this may dissuade you from trying any other probiotic foods. If you're looking to start incorporating gut-friendly foods into your diet, play around with different types. Each gut is different and needs its own unique types
0: of bacteria to make it happy. I'm so glad you picked this article because I'm also interested in the gut microbiome. Yes, I know. (laughs) It's a new frontier and it's very exciting. Mm -hmm. And when you said that a healthy microbiome has been linked to do all these great things, Mm -hmm. it made me remember that when I went to the Academy of Nutrition's conference last year in Chicago, Mm -hmm. it was super exciting to be there. It was information overload. I bet. And I went to one talk on the microbiome. (gasps) And I learned a few things uh, that they study the microbes by fluorescence, and that they're still trying to figure out how to quantify the diversity of the microbiota, and that there's also no known bacterial groups that are widely and consistently shared among the human microbiome. Really? Really? it's wild. Uh, I really wish I could have found the author of this session that I went to, but I have lost the information. But uh, he also had pointed out that when you have decreased diversity, it means that you're more likely to be diseased. So Mm -hmm. there is definitely an association. There is a link there. He also talked about the differences in diversity. So he talked about alpha diversity, meaning the number of microbes that you have in your gut and mm-hmm. in your colon and then there's also an evenness like do you have more of microbe A or then microbe B or are they relatively the same in numbers oh, and do you want that well he doesn't know <laughs> okay. they don't know and that's what makes it interesting yeah and then there's also a beta diversity where we kind of compare samples between each other
1: mm-hmm.
0: and try to figure out what that means as well so wow. There's a lot. Then he talked about studying whether diet-induced gut microbial dysbiosis, which is an imbalance, can conquer susceptibility to infection. What they did in his particular study was that they took undernourished children's fecal microbes and put it into germ-free mice, and what what they saw was that it caused undernutrition in the mice. So I thought that that was Really that fascinating. Is crazy. Now it makes me wonder what the implications of that could be. So his whole goal was to figure out how to properly nourish these undernourished kids. But unfortunately, the what we perceive to be healthy microbes uh, aren't really that well understood. So we're not really sure if it works, why it works, or mm. if it doesn't work, why it doesn't work. Wow. So it's a little. Um, it was a little frustrating, but also exciting because there's just so much more to know. Yeah. Also, when you are studying stool samples of microbes, they're not necessarily equal to your GI microbes. Mm. So I found that to be interesting. So your stool sample is not going to give you like the full story of what's in your body. And the last thing is that we don't actually know for sure if microbes promote health or whether they simply thrive in a healthy gut environment.
1: Oh, man. (laughs) (sighs)
0: It's
1: like which came first. Exactly. Yeah. Which came first. So we really don't know
0: anything, is what you're saying. (laughs) That means that there's plenty of opportunity for all the science nerds out there. Yes,
1: absolutely. So speaking of gut health, I think your next article, Jen, has to do with vitamin D and IBS. What's going on with that
0: one? Hilo Magazine recently highlighted a study that was done on vitamin D supplements and IBS symptoms. The study was done by Dr. Bernard Coffey of the University of Sheffield in the U.K., They did a review to see if there was a correlation between vitamin D deficiency and irritable bowel syndrome, better known as IBS. They analyzed four observational studies and three randomized controlled trials. In one observational study, researchers found one woman's IBS symptoms significantly improved after receiving a high dose daily supplement of vitamin D. Based on the study, the doctor went on to say that it is evident that the findings from the people with IBS should have their vitamin D levels tested. A large majority of them would benefit from supplements. So I was really excited about this article because mm-hmm. even though we have a basic assumption of how vitamins and minerals are processed in our body, there's always room for growth on the mechanisms because we don't know at all. If we did, I don't think we would have as many medical problems. Right. But when you are getting vitamin D from either the sun or from food, it is going through the liver and then the kidney, then to the intestine, and it works in calcifications with your bones. Um, But I did want to talk about this article with you because I think you made some great points about uh, some of the studies that they were looking at.
1: Yeah, so we were reviewing this article before we started recording, and we noticed that it's Funded by Better Ltd, which markets vitamin D supplements. Yeah. So they're the ones who compiled, they, they performed the review. Uh, so they compiled the studies and they looked at them and they determined what they thought the conclusion was. So there's always the possibility that they could have cherry-picked articles, so they could have picked ones that only made uh, supplementation look like a good idea. Mm -hmm. They could have not done that. They could have been fair, of course. But these are all really great questions (laughs) when we're looking at studies that we should consider. Right. You always want to look at the funding of any research study that you're reading and be aware that there could be some bias there. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's necessarily the case. No. It's good to look at other sources as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Still interesting, and I mean, we all know that we're, as a whole, low in vitamin D. Except for you, Jen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Run outside.
1: Yes. (laughs) And eat salmon.
0: Our first article was found in the new Atlas, and it's by Rich Herity, a reporter. Titled, Struggle to Lose Weight? Your Gut Bacteria May Be to Blame. So a new study was published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, and it set out to examine variations. In gut bacteria in obese subjects trying to lose weight. The results revealed that there were indeed differences in gut bacteria between those who were successful in losing weight and those who are not losing weight. Vandana Nira, a co-senior author on the study, explains that gut bacteria have the capacity to break down complex food particles, which provides us with additional energy. And this is normally good for us. However, some individuals trying to lose weight, this process may become a hindrance. Two specific genus of bacteria immediately stood out in the results. Bascolarctic toe bacterium, a reasonably common type of bacteria, was seen in an increased level in subjects successful in losing weight. While an increased abundance of dilister was identified in those less able to lose weight. So the phascolaric toe bacterium was good for the subjects, while dilister was not so great. The actual mechanisms these bacteria use to influence energy expenditure and metabolism is unknown at this point, but They could be initially used as biomarkers to help clinicians better tailor individual weight loss programs. It was found that those who were unable to lose weight had an increased capacity for carbohydrate metabolism. This essentially means that some people can more effectively metabolize carbohydrates and subsequently have more difficulty in losing weight through calorie restriction and increased Physical activity. Oh snap!
1: (laughs) This is amazing and this is why it drives me crazy every time I hear someone say calories in, calories out. It's that easy. Isn't that great? Yes. And
0: actually print this out and like keep it in our pocket forever. Yeah, and just hand it out to people who are like (laughs) (laughs) saying calories in or who say that, oh carbs are bad. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not that easy. It's just not that simple. So, oh, the reporter actually said maybe this will finally put a nail in the coffin on calories in, calories oh, out. See, it won't. But cool. yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, but maybe we'll get we're getting there. we'll get there we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. All right. So we usually say metabolism, metabolism, metabolism. But there are two different types of metabolism. The scientists on this study. We'll have to go further and do another research study to explore the details of the mechanisms because we don't know if the issue is on the catabolic end or the anabolic end. When we eat food, it is broken down by catabolic metabolism, and then our anabolic activity takes the particles and builds it or stores it. Can I share
1: how we remember catabolic and anabolic? Oh, please do. it's so cute. It is great. (laughs) So catabolic metabolism is the breaking down of stuff. Right. And cats like to push stuff off of counters and
0: break stuff down. So <laughs> That's how I remember it. That's totally how I remember yeah. <laughs> it. I just picture this cat getting handed a glass of water and he's like, Boop. "Boom. <laughs> Bring me another." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is really cool. I it's just further it further's our study of nutrition in live people and it right makes it more complicated and exciting because there are some people who genuinely have tried and not done their goal and we usually blame the patient
1: mm-hmm. and say
0: oh they're sneaking food they're not being honest with their amount of exercise or what they're intaking or maybe mm-hmm. they don't know how to track calories and for those who are being honest This might explain some of their frustration.
1: Yeah. I'm sure it can be um, challenging to try to figure out like, okay, is this person really being honest or are they lying? And you can't assume someone's lying just because they're not getting results. Right. Because of stuff like this.
0: Yeah. You don't want to go into that mindset. No. Mm -mm. No. Struggle's real, dude. Yeah. Struggle's just real. Yes.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, our next article, Jen, as you know, (laughs) is about probiotics and brain fog, and we both chose this article.
0: (laughs) I also was fascinated by this, so hopefully you guys are going to be really excited too. Yeah. So
1: this article is from Newsweek. It's written by Kashmira Gander, and it's called Probiotics Could Cause Brain Fogginess and Bloating, Study Suggests. Although most of us think of probiotics as wonderful little miracle bugs – One recent study has linked them to unpleasant symptoms like brain fog and bloating. A team of researchers at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University say they are the first to link probiotics to brain fogginess and bacterial growth in the digestive system. For some patients, symptoms were so severe that they had to quit their
0: jobs. That's awful. Yeah. And since we're talking about probiotics as kind of a bad thing for once, did Mm -hmm. someone say... It's complicated? (laughs) It's complicated.
1: (laughs) So probiotics, as we all probably know, is the umbrella term for foods and supplements containing good bacteria that are beneficial to our digestive system. Foods containing these probiotics include yogurt, kimchi, and sauerkraut. Cultivating this good bacteria is widely thought to be beneficial to our health, and is believed to balance out the bad bacteria in our bodies.
0: And before you throw up your hands in the air and wonder if any food is good or matters, (laughs) please hang in there with us because it um, isn't that simple. So if probiotics colonize
1: the wrong part of the digestive system, like the small intestine, this can cause problems. Probiotics belong in the colon, where they live on certain types of fiber and produce beneficial short-chain fatty acids. The participants in this study had their GI tracts examined and filled out a questionnaire about digestive symptoms, whether they had used antibiotics or probiotics recently, and if they ate probiotic foods. Of the 30 participants, 22 took probiotics and also report symptoms like confusion, difficulty concentrating, and abnormal levels of gas and bloating. These participants had taken probiotics consistently for between three months and three years, with some people consuming two or three different kinds of probiotics. Now here's the interesting part. Researchers discovered colonies of gut bacteria in these participants' small intestines. And remember, this is not where you want your gut bacteria to live, they belong in the colon. So to me, it sounds like an overgrowth. That's right. Yep. Yep. Test results showed levels of D-lactic acid that were three times higher than a normal level. This was likely caused by lactobacillus fermenting the sugar from the food the participants were eating. D-lactic acid can be toxic to brain cells and impair your cognitive abilities, including concepts of time. This may explain why participants reported brain fogginess hours after eating. By any chance, did
0: they do a um, blood test for any other substances? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I wonder if the subjects in the study had had directions to take these probiotic supplements or if they were just taking them on their own. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good
1: question. Isn't it, though? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and even... (sighs) Now, this is just my experience, but when I've been told by a doctor to take probiotics,
0: I have not been given specific instructions. They don't give you like a species? No. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, just take a supplement or eat mm-hmm. yogurt.
1: That's the,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm a, my personal humble opinion is that anytime a person has a deficiency in a vitamin mineral or is experiencing a gastrointestinal problem, they should go to a dietitian. And if the problem is severe enough, then get bumped up to a gastroenterologist. But that's just me. Yeah. I guess insurance doesn't work that way. Yeah, that's one of the problems. Yeah. Yeah. So these good bacteria that are supposed to be in our colon, they are overgrowing to the small intestine. Mm -hmm. And so to me, they sound like opportunistic bacteria because when you're healthy, things are relatively in harmony. Mm -hmm. You know, homeostasis. But um, even the good things can become bad things. Right. That's right. Cool. I mean, not cool, but it's (laughs) interesting. 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 There we go.
1: So scientists already know that probiotics can cause the body to produce delactic acid in people whose small intestines do not work properly. So there you go. They're not in homeostasis. Undigested carbs that linger in the small intestine can cause a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO. SIBO has also been found in infants who consume probiotic
0: formula. Yeah, do you remember that episode we did where I covered how babies should not have a diverse gut flora? (gasps) That's right. Yeah, that was episode 26. So if you haven't heard that one yet, check that out. Um, You can find it on Apple, well, never mind. You know where, because you're already listening. (laughs) You find it wherever you are.
1: (laughs) The researchers discovered that all of the participants who suffered from brain fog took probiotics and were more likely to have SIBO and higher levels of D-lactic acid. When the patients were prescribed antibiotics to tackle the misplaced gut bacteria and stopped taking probiotics, 80% saw their symptoms disappear within 3 months. Dr. Rao, author of this study, concluded that probiotic bacteria have the potential to break down sugar and produce D-lactic acid. So, if you accidentally colonize your small intestines with this bacteria, you can develop lactic acidosis and brain fog. And the lactic acidosis is what can cause the bloating and stomach discomfort. She points out, probiotics should be treated as a drug, not a supplement. Yes. <laughs> they should not be taken without the supervision of a doctor or a dietician.
0: I couldn't help myself. I just get so excited. Yes. (laughs) This reporter is after my heart because he followed up with a registered dietitian. Hooray! (laughs) Yay! Kristen Jackson, a qualified spokesperson for the British Dietetic Association, was not involved with the research, and she told Newsweek that the results do not surprise her because brain fogginess is a common symptom of poor digestive health. She clarified that. The design on the study only shows associations and not actual links. However, there is equally no proof that taking probiotics for the general population is of any benefit, only for those with digestive problems. Mm. And cultivating gut microbes is more complex than eating some yogurt or popping pills. She said foods are actually not probiotic. There is no proof that they reach the large bowel in enough of a quantity to have an actual beneficial effect on health.
1: Yeah. What? And I, I know I've mentioned this several times, but there's that episode of Gastropod, one of our favorite podcasts. Shout out. Yeah. Love you guys. <laughs> and they talked to someone who specialized in kombucha and kombucha cultures and probiotics. And yes. And that person said that the probiotics don't necessarily make it to
0: your colon to colonize your microbiota. That is so fascinating. Yes. I mean, we know numbers matter. Mm-hmm. We know that. Yep. And so for probiotic therapy, supplementation may be the answer if you need it. If you need it. If you, if need, you it. need it. Yeah. <laughs> Kristen Jackson, the RD, recommends a multifactorial approach when it comes to a person's health because the problem is far more complicated <laughs> Of course, she recommended that those interested in taking probiotics should discuss this with a registered dietitian who can assess their symptoms and give accurate and safe advice.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting how when I was first getting interested in nutrition years and years ago, some of the stuff like SIBO and brain fog and even things like leaky gut were kind of seen as um, not real. (laughs) Hokey? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really exciting that this stuff is finally being recognized because it's, there are issues that a lot of people deal with. And it's also interesting to point out that just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it's not real. So the stuff like the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth are things that people used to have to go to um, alternative doctors to, to get treated because mm-hmm. they weren't recognized. So it's nice to see this stuff show up in research and actually be looked at
0: that is refreshing. Yeah. Our next article is from Science Daily, an online news source for new research. There was no author credited and it was titled Artificial Sweeteners Have Toxic Effects on Gut Microbes. Hmm. You know, <laughs> the title is a little misleading and Okay. And if you read any news sources about this study, also misleading.
1: Yeah, cuz what I'm thinking it is is I eat Splenda and it kills my gut flora.
0: That's not what the study showed.
1: Oh, Science Daily does this.
0: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So what we're learning is that there's a lot of clickbait out there, yes. and unfortunately, the sensationalism gives some journalists, you know, more reads, which is good. Um, In this case, there is no author, but I guess it helps the overall news source for Science Daily. Mm -hmm. But we're going to explain this because we are the nutrition nerds. Yeah.
1: And I just want to add, authors a lot of times don't choose the title of their article.
0: Oh. I was
1: always given the title. And sometimes I would edit it, but that didn't always stick. So don't. Be too harsh on the author.
0: Oh. It's not always their fault. A little industry insight. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. Uh, frustrating.
1: But <laughs> <From> frustrating, <laughs> but yeah. Good,
0: Good to, to know. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this study looked at the effects of artificial sweeteners on E. coli. In our show notes, which you can find on our website at the Nutrition Nerds Kelly will provide a link to the study if you are super interested. Isn't she awesome? <laughs> Yes, she is. <laughs> <laughs> this study took six artificial sweeteners, which were aspartame, sucralose, saccharin, neotame, adventame, and ace K, to expose to E. coli. sucralose, by the way, is Splenda. Aspartame is equal by brand names. And I'm not sure of the others. Do you know saccharin. any of the others? Sweet and Low.
1: I think it's Sweet and Low. Okay.
0: They also took. 10 sports supplements containing the same artificial sweeteners Mm -hmm. and tested that out on the E. coli bacteria as well. The E. coli bacteria became toxic when exposed to concentrations of only 1 milligram over 1 milliliter of artificial sweeteners. So what? (laughs) (laughs) So for reference, because I'm trying to make sense of this number, one serving size of an equal, which is the aspartame, is made of dextrose with malodextrin, aspartame, and ACEK, and is typically one gram. Unfortunately, I could not easily find how much aspartame was in an equal, but I, I believe it's its main ingredient. Uh, this study measured the effect of just one milligram. So that oh, seemed like a pretty big deal to me.
1: That's one one thousandth.
0: Right. Of a pack. Right. But here's the thing we don't know how much E. coli bacteria is within our gut necessarily. Mm-hmm. And this study was done in vitro, so it's hard for me to make a comparison. Yeah. To be fair, I'm, I'm trying to not put my own biases into this. So about the E. coli bacteria, for those of you who are a little bit confused, it is a standard pick for many research studies because E. coli bacteria is a very versatile microbe. It does reside in our colon, making it a part of our gut microbiome, but it's not necessarily the most common bacteria either. You may have heard about E. coli from food contamination. It may be pathogenic when it travels the oral fecal route. The good news is that in America, our water and food supply is heavily monitored to prevent contamination. (laughs) At least from E. coli. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, some of the time, our food and water does get contaminated. But when that's compared to all the times it's safe, it's pretty rare we have contamination. Hmm. Hooray! Yay, clean water. <laughs> yes, and clean food. Yeah. And E. coli can also be a problem in hospitals. Yeah. When E. coli gets in your blood from cuts Ooh. or surgery, that can cause major health problems, like septus. Not good. No. But enough about E. coli as a bad guy. What about the good stuff? Ooh. Well, the good stuff right now is mostly theory. They say that E. coli produces vitamin K and B12. Oh. Vitamin K and B12 are essential nutrients for us. The vitamins E. coli produces, though, are not enough to supply us with our needed amounts, and the mechanisms of absorption from the E. coli supply to us is not clear. Another theory about E. coli is that it works to competitively push out other pathogens. And this is kind of neat to me (laughs) on how it works. Our existing antibodies provide mucus that the E. coli feeds on.
1: I'm <laughs> oh. thinking about mucus. Mm.
0: <laughs> the E. coli feeds on the mucus to build its own community, and Aww. it builds a fun slime biofilm. Oh, yeah. Slime layer. Yeah, the slime layer. <laughs> you know that little picture yeah. of it crawling up there? <laughs> this slime biofilm allows the E. coli to grow and it keeps other microbes out. Now back to the artificial sweeteners. When the artificial sweeteners were exposed to E. coli bacteria in vitro, meaning in a peach tree dish, the E. coli exhibited toxicity. They did not respond well to the sweeteners. So
1: the E. coli was damaged? or like, mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha.
0: Right, and, and was releasing not good stuff is my understanding.
1: Oh, okay.
0: My basic understanding of this study.
1: Okay. Well, that, that makes sense if it's. If can about, be
0: pathogenic. Yeah, if you yeah, think
1: about microbiology.
0: Lysing. Cell lysing. Yes. It, okay. When uh, a microbe lyses, uh, breaks open, that can create problems for us because we don't necessarily need all the stuff inside the cell. Mm-hmm. We want that cell contained in its own little cell membrane where it should be. <laughs> <laughs> now, how far we want to take this study and translate it to our human health is kind of up to you at this point. Um, In the media, it's been advertised as this is further evidence that this is proof that the sweeteners are bad for you. And of course, our friends over at the Calorie Council, who are (laughs) advocates of the industry, (laughs) are saying that this proves nothing. No, of course not. (laughs) So I wanted to clarify that this is in a Petri dish. Uh, This is not in a human, but it is Notable that the consumption of artificial sweeteners has been linked with adverse effects in humans, but linked just means correlated, not causation. So unfortunately, we do not yet have scientific proof that artificial sweeteners directly cause things like type 2 diabetes, metabolic disorders, weight gain, or alteration of gut microbiota activity. Right now, it's just an association. By the way, if you're really interested in this topic, a great episode for you to pair with this one is episode 11. We discussed the industry's mm-hmm. argument for the use of artificial sweeteners in that episode. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, like that one.
1: I love that you picked this because it's such a great example of how you can skew research. Because I'm in a research methodology class right now, I'm really thinking about this stuff because I have to compile research and interpret it and make my own conclusion. And it's so, I mean, even if you try to keep your biases out of it, it can be subjective. And yes. people always say, you know, science is science and it's cut and dry. But it's really not because it's up to us as humans to interpret it. it it's it was, just so interesting. It is. Yeah. We,
0: do have, we, we try to create these systems to protect us against our own biases, like mm-hmm. the scientific method and create goal standards of measurement. But in areas of new research, sometimes they don't have a gold standard yet. Yeah. So I'm kind of wondering what this really proves. But I'm glad that this research was done because I, what I hope comes out of it is a continuation of this type of research. Mm-hmm. Because I don't necessarily endorse artificial sweeteners. Even if they don't spike blood sugar, I do have reservations about them because they're so much sweeter than regular sugar. Like Mm -hmm. equal is 200 times sweeter than table sugar. And that's not an exaggeration. That's a scientific number because they can measure that, which is really neat. But I think that messes with your expectations of what food should be. Yeah, And I think it does mess up your signals. But this is just a theory right now. We have Mm -hmm. to hammer all of that out in in further studies. Yeah. And that's...
1: (laughs) That's why it'd be great if we could keep these huge, radical conclusions. If We could save those until we have more research, because this Mm -hmm. is just one tiny little piece of the puzzle of that.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: we need to to chill out for a second. Yeah,
0: absolutely. (laughs) Because if you're a diabetic, you probably should not have table sugar. Yeah. Um, So, uh, and is it fair to say like, well, you can't have anything sweet ever? I don't know.
1: No, and I don't think that's
0: the case. Yeah. Yeah. So. But moving on. Are microwaves destroying (laughs) your food? (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) My first article is from Hilo.com, and it's titled, High Fat Diet Linked to Unfavorable Gut Microbiota Changes. This article summarized the journal's findings, and a perspective is written by Kelly Isitson, a registered dietitian who also holds a master's degree in science, and a certification in CNSC, which stands for Certified Nutrition Support Clinician. She also specializes in nutrition and integrative IBD. Cool. Yes. The study was published in the Gut Journal and found that eating a diet high in fat and low in carbohydrates can lead to changes in the gut and the microbiome level that could lead to the development of metabolic disorders. Western diets often result in a low microbial diversity. And there's an association between low microbial diversity and poor health. A diet-induced dysbiosis, a microbial imbalance, in the gut has been theorized as a major trigger of metabolic impairments. Obesity is also associated with metabolic impairments.
1: And what would metabolic impairments be?
0: Good catch. Good question. Uh, Metabolic impairments can be things like diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, IBS. Mm -hmm. The authors predicted that poor gut health microbiome was caused by a high-fat westernized diet and leading to obesity and metabolic impairments. Researchers conducted a six-month randomized controlled feeding trial. Participants were 217 healthy young Chinese adults aged 18 to 25 years old, Most were women, about 52% of them, and the average BMI was less than 28, and a normal BMI is within 18 to 24.9, so the average participant would have been considered overweight if we just went by BMI. Right. But,
1: eh. is not bad, depending on your body type. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They randomly assigned participants to go on one of three isocaloric diets. One was lower fat of 20% energy, one was moderate fat, which is 30% energy, and 30% is the current recommendation, and the last isochloric diet prescribed was higher fat, which was at 40% of energy intake. The protein macros were all 14%, and the carbohydrates were adjusted for the composition equal to 100.
1: So they just fill in whatever's left with carbs?
0: Basically. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. They assessed the effects of the dietary interventions on the gut microbiota and the inflammatory triggers in the blood and fecal samples. They were taken at baseline and again after 6 months. Investigators found that the higher fat diets were associated with changes to longer chain fatty acid metabolism, which in turn had higher levels of chemicals that could potentially trigger inflammation. Hmm. Investigators found that the different diets produced different gut microbiota, and I wish I knew more about the bacteria to fully discuss it. But there is a perspective from the dietitian Kelly Isikson, who points out several helpful things. First, the primary aim of the randomized controlled feeding trial was to determine if a low-fat diet was more effective than a high-fat diet in helping participants lose weight. Oh,
1: <laughs> another one of those.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's, it wasn't really the main focus for the gut microbiota to be included in the results. Also, fiber provided in all diets was similar at baseline to only 14 grams of fiber per day, which is low. That's about half of probably what they needed.
1: How would they do that?
0: I believe the significance to that is that a high-fiber diet could have changed the results of the gut bacteria because your gut bacteria loves fiber. It's what they eat. It's interesting that the study chose not to include it. Maybe they were trying to see if a favorable gut microbiome could exist with a low-fat, high-carb diet despite low fiber.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, I cannot see recommending that a diet with 65% carbs without the fiber. That mm-hmm. means that likely the carbohydrates weren't complex carbs, because complex carbs contain
1: fiber. fiber. <laughs> yeah. That's such a weird choice to me.
0: Yeah, I think they were maybe trying to isolate like that factor. Maybe it could yeah. have been seen as confounding. Mm-hmm. The dietitian Kelly Isitson, also points out that all groups lost weight, but the low-fat group lost the most. Yes, well, okay, but the literature on macro adjustments is highly mixed, so take that with a big grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Not literally, because, <laughs> you know, hypertension and all. The dietitian Kelly Isitson, also states that, interestingly, the study found that the high-fat diet led to unfavorable changes in the microbiota and inflammatory markers – However, it is important to note that the type of fat the researchers modified in their dietary interventions was soybean oil, which, which is rich in omega-6 fatty acids. And the reason why that's significant is that omega-6 fatty acids, if you have too many of those, those are obviously going to increase your inflammation mm-hmm. and your inflammation markers. Who put this together? <laughs> the researchers found increased levels of arachidonic acid were in the high fat group and arachidonic acid are precursors of inflammatory compounds derived from soybeans. So basically the diet was feeding them a bunch of soybean oil and they had an abundance of omega-6, which are pro-inflammatory. So yes, it would be interesting to see the study ran again, but with different types of fats. And I hope that that's their goal. Mm -hmm. The dietitian Kelly Isitzen says that the results of the study are limited in terms of generalizability, and what that means is that since the study was conducted in young and healthy populations, it's really hard to say how these diet changes would affect other groups of people. The dietitian Kelly Isitzen said that she will continue to recommend the Mediterranean-style eating pattern, which has been associated with favorable changes in the microbiota, as well as positive effects on health and wellness. Because the Mediterranean diet is rich in fiber, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains, legumes, olive oil, which is higher in omega-3 fatty acids, and encourages moderate to low intake of fish, dairy, and meat. So the study looked really fascinating at first, like, oh, like maybe we shouldn't be eating high fat because of this factor, but I like how the dietitian broke this study down into pointing out some flaws designed. Well, because mm-hmm. if you just read the headline, you might think, oh, maybe I should lower my fat, but um, it's really not what it was saying.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm glad she did that. I'm glad she looked into it because what you're eating is really important. It's not just the macros.
0: Yes. Yeah. Sorry guys. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> That's it for this week. If you want more info on anything we talked about, or if you'd like to read the articles we referenced, you can find our show notes at the Nutrition
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Nutrition Nerds
0: Podcast. And if you like this week's episode, please head over to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review getting reviews allows us to grow and helps us reach more people so if you have a few spare seconds we'd really appreciate it
1: and if there's anything you want us to cover on the show please drop us a line at the nutrition nerds podcast at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media pages we love to hear from you and cover the stuff that you're interested in later nerds this has been the nutrition nerds podcast Thank you so much for listening and until next week, eat well
0: and stay nerdy.